We had a Zechariah chapter 14, the day of the Lord. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, I should say uh, Zechariah. So we're going to be looking at Zechariah. We're going to also be looking at a lot of verses out of Revelation and other parts of the Bible. And Zechariah, as we've seen, is the last chapter in Zechariah. And I, I guess here in our local congregation, we've been doing a, uh, a theme on Zechariah and a whole study on Zechariah. And we've seen over and over again that uh, Zechariah is very symbolic um, in his writings. He had uh, one vision God gave him of uh, two women with wings like storks picking up another woman who was shoved into a basket and a lid... Uh, a lead lid put on her and taken to Shinar. So a lot of imagery in uh, Zechariah. <clears throat> and so it shouldn't be tried to be, should not be attempted to be understood literally word for word in its verses, but understood in context of the rest of the Bible. That's why we'll be looking at other verses in the Bible to rightly understand Zechariah. And the last few chapters in this book of Zechariah have been pointing forward to, well, a lot to Yeshua, whole book to Yeshua, but, but some very powerful text on Yeshua and into last day events. And so this chapter in particular we'll see affecting last day events. Okay, so the day of the Lord. Starting in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Okay, so this day of the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, and when he comes, he's going to give us our spoils, or he's going to give us our rewards. And what does the Bible say are the rewards that he gives when he comes? The wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so those are the two gifts, those are the spoils that he meets out, those are the rewards that he meets out on that day of the Lord at his coming. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And uh, we've seen that throughout uh, the book of Zechariah, because he was writing at a time when we had come back after 70 years of captivity in Babylon and returned, not everyone, actually not even the majority. Uh, and so God used Zechariah as well as others, Rubbable and, and um, Yeshua ben Yehozadak and... and uh, um, Haggai, to prophesy and to encourage and build up the city, to build up the nation, to build, rebuild the temple the second time. And God used them mightily. So a lot of the focus has been on Jerusalem, the literal Jerusalem in that day, uh, but we see also prophetic for Jerusalem being destroyed and rebuilt and attacked again and again. And so here again is prophesying an attack on Jerusalem. And so I believe it's literal Jerusalem, maybe not so much the city, but the people. And, and the nation, and it might not be such, so much a physical attack like this picture of, of, of tanks and, and airplanes, although it could be, but there's other attack, type of attacks as well. There's UN resolutions, there's cyber attacks, there's anti-Semitic statements and votes and, and, and decisions and, and actions taking place. And so not only on the literal city and the nation, modern nation and the people, but also the, all the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all those that have been adopted in as well, all those that have been grafted in, those that have been regrafted and those that have been grafted in uh, from the natural branch and from the unnatural branch, as Paul talks about, the, the tree, the, the, the God's tree, the, the olive tree that has the grafting in and the regrafting of uh, wild 
olive branches brought into it. So all of God's people will be under attack from all nations. All the world will wander after the beast, right? And there will be God's remnant that remain faithful under those charges and under the threats to not be able to buy or sell and, and, and to be killed for taking a stand for the Lord. They will think they're doing God's service as they are attempting and killing and they'll be martyrs. So God will gather, all the nations will gather, will be allowed to gather a, ba- a battle against God's people. And I have no doubt it will be a literal as well as on the worldwide spiritual sense as well. <clears throat> the little cartoon here uh, from Dry Bones, uh, he says, uh, the Jewish state, this man says to King Solomon, the Jewish state has done the impossible. We have united the nations of the world. And Solomon responds, and the bad news? They have, oops, they are united against us. <laughs> so we've united all the world, but they're all united in one factor, and they're all united in the factor of being against God's people. Right? And we're seeing that, right? And we're going to see that more and more, and we shouldn't be surprised at that when all the world, when all the nations of the world, and all the people of the world, again, vast majority, wander after the beast, and then do the beast's bidding, do the devil's bidding in attacking God's people. And that's nothing new. That's the same all down from Noah's day down through, and before Noah, of course. But all the way through the ages, uh, God's people have been under attack, and we shouldn't be surprised at that. The city will be taken, the houses rivaled, rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And so again, this could be taken literally, but again, more of the spiritual. There'll be this battle, war, there'll be troublesome times, and, and uh, the time of trouble, such as the world has never seen, and God will see us through it. So now to, so this is the first two verses. We're going to see this Revelation, uh, Zechariah 14, divided into two sections. And Zechariah was not divided up any, like, as any other part of the Bible into chapters originally when it was written. And we've seen as we've looked at Zechariah, there are often several visions in one chapter that are obviously separate visions, but they put them together in one chapter. And so this could be two different parts or one part but understood with this division. So we've had these first two verses, and we'll see two more verses. Uh, And so as we're seeing here in these last day events in our timeline regarding the thousand years, the green part, the top part, will be what happens to God's people, and the bottom part, the pinkish, reddish part, will be what happens to those that oppose God. Okay, and so in these last days, our, now we need to be getting ready, and we need to be taking the gospel to the world, and at the same time, uh, the devil will be raising up his powers, his followers, to cause tribulation, to install the mark of the beast, and the plagues will come upon them. And that's what we've been seeing, right? So the city ravaged and attacked, and all the nations coming against. So this tribulation against God's people, while God's people are taking the gospel to the world. Verse 3, And the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Okay, so the Lord will fight. Why does he have to fight? Because we're under attack. Right? And so he comes in and he fights, like when we were crossing uh, the, the, the Red Sea, God came in and fought for us. We were under attack, we were closed in, 
and God steps in at the last moment and he steps in and fights for us. And here again, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, all the nations that come against God's people, as he fights in the day of battle. So he's coming as a warrior. So here's the Lord coming and he's coming as a warrior to do battle to fight for us in our defense, uh, to judge the wicked against the righteous and to determine who needs to be fought against and who needs to be protected. And so the Lord comes as judge, he comes as warrior king, as, as, uh, as Mashiach ben David, as, as the David the warrior in this coming. And parallel to that, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Right? So God comes, he comes and he does his deliverance, as we just saw in Zechariah 14, verse 3. He comes as a deliverer to do battle against those nations and to deliver us through a time of horrible trouble, as was mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. So horrible time, difficult time, and God's deliverance. The parallels there. And that's again at that time, and we'll see this phrase at that time over and over again uh, in these verses today. So the Lord comes, he comes to do battle, he comes to do deliverance, and he comes and he resurrects, this is the time of the first resurrection, he delivers his people, and it's at his second coming, at his second advent, and he comes to work and do deliverance for us. And that's described in the Bible, and we'll look at a whole bunch of texts here uh, on this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the shofar of God, and the dead in Messiah shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so he comes, he does battle, he does deliverance, he delivers his people, he raises the dead, and he takes us and we meet the Lord in the air. This is very significant, especially as we look at Zechariah 14, at this point, at his second coming, we meet the Lord in the air. His deliverance to free us from these nations, he takes us and he brings us to meet him in the air. Both the righteous living and the righteous dead, those that have died, he resurrects and together we meet the Lord in the air. John chapter 14, verse one, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, so he, Yeshua was prophesying. He came his first time. While he was here, he told his disciples and others that he was going to come again at the second coming, and at that time, he would receive us, dead in Messiah and those that are alive, together to meet him in the air, and then he takes us in the air, and he takes us where? To the mansions he's preparing for us, the New Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem. So he takes us there that we may be where he is. So we go to meet him in the air, and then off to the New Jerusalem that he is preparing for us. So he takes us there in the first resurrection, and we meet the Lord in the air, and then at the same time, the wicked will be slain simultaneously at his coming, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 
So he comes, he delivers his saints, and at the same time he's coming to do battle, and he slays all the nations of the earth with the brightness of his coming that have come against him. Right? Just as that said in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. He comes to deliver his people and to fight against all the nations that have come up against his people. And at that day, right, so again, at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33. Okay, so the slain of the Lord. So he comes to do battle. Comes in the brightness of his coming. And he destroys and the slain of the earth are from one end of the earth to the other. The whole earth. And they're not buried. They're not lamented. They're not gathered together. They're just left there. Why? Why, why isn't anyone lamenting them? Why isn't anyone burying them? Why isn't anyone gathering them? All the wicked are dead, so they can't gather their own. And the righteous... As we just saw, met the Lord in the air and taken to the mansions that God is preparing for us. So we're not here to even lament them, even if it was a loved one that, that refused the Lord. We can't lament them. We can't even bury them. We'll be in heaven, and they can't even bury themselves or gather themselves because they were all destroyed at the brightness of his coming. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. In the time of the harvest, right, so the end harvest, the final harvest, the gathering of his people, I will say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. Now this Sukkot is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also known as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Ingathering. So it's got these several different names for so the Feast of Ingathering, and here it says, gather them together, right, at the time of the harvest, and also, because it's the final harvest, the, the, the fall harvest taking place, the bringing the fruits, building the tabernacles, and eating the fruits and grains of the harvest together, and bringing our tithes of our crops to the Lord, to the, to the temple. That's why it was a pilgrim feast, so that we can come and bring our fall tithes to the Lord from our harvest, and rejoice again together in the harvest that God had given us. So it's an in-gathering, gathering in the the sheaves gathering in the, the, the harvest, gathering in the, the fruits, or gathering it together and coming to the temple, and again returning our first fruits, our tithe, and our offerings to the Lord, and rejoicing that the harvest is done for the year. And uh, we can now pray for a rainy season for the following year. So he's talking about a harvest time, he's talking about a gathering time, again this final Sukkot, Sukkot time, and it says, at that time, take the tares, the weeds, and burn them up and gather the wheat into my barns. So we see simultaneously, at the coming of the Lord, the wicked destroyed with the brightness of his coming, the tares burned up, the, uh, the dead being from one end of the earth to the other, and the righteous taken to the barns, to meet the Lord in the air, taken to the mansions that he is preparing for us. So several verses, and there's many others that talk along this line, there's a sheep and the goat, similar type of thing. Uh, another place where the fish is, the fish, the good fish thrown, kept in, the bad fish thrown out. Several different analogies of this exact same timing. As in the days of Noah, right? Noah saved in the ark, the wicked destroyed. As in the days of Lot, 
Lot taken out and saved, and the wicked destroyed simultaneously. Over and over again, this theme throughout the Bible. So, we're taken to heaven, the righteous are in heaven with the Lord, the wicked were slain at the brightness of his coming, when the Lord came to do deliverance for us, to fight against those nations, and to deliver us. Right? And so now we have this thousand years that we are with the Lord, and we're in heaven with the Lord for those thousand years. Well, what are we doing for those thousand years? We're judging with the Lord for those thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? So in the Revelation 20, verse 6, it says that we will judge for a thousand years. We will be there for a thousand years judging. And in 1 Corinthians, it says we will be judging the world. We will be judging even angels at that time. So we're in heaven, in the New Jerusalem, in thrones that God gives to us, seated in thrones of judgment. He places in upon us the, the, the responsibility of judging as judges. Because again, he comes at the second time as a warrior, as a judge, separating, deciding, sheep, goats, wheat, tares. He makes his decision, and then he allows us to become judges with him at that time. And we will judge the world. We will judge even angels, it says. So for a thousand years, that's what we're doing, not judging here on earth. God doesn't place us as rulers over the wicked for a thousand years. I mean, how would that go? Right? If they don't want us to be judging over them, how are they going to be obedient? How are they going to be cooperative? Right? And again, we already said that they're slain with the brightness of his coming. They're from throughout the earth. Uh, and we'll see some more chapters, more verses saying that the, the earth is void during that time. Now, we're in heaven judging with the Lord. But God has already judged. He's already separated the wheat and tares. But he allows us in a sense, very merciful, very lo loving, very transparent God, who says, okay, this is what I judged, I let you guys get to heaven, and I destroyed those other guys, but I, you, just in case you have any questions about that decision, I want you to look over the books with me. I want you to enter into the judgment with me, for you to audit my books, for you to audit my decision, for you to double-check my decision and see if you agree with me. Which, again, I think is a very loving and very transparent thing for God to do. A very open God, not a fearful God, not a dictator God. And we'd want to know, wouldn't we? Let's say your spouse doesn't make it. Let's say one of your children doesn't make it. One of your parents don't make it. Your Aunt Sally, who was so godly. And she's not there. Wouldn't you want to know why? And God in his mercy opens the book and says, look, yeah, they looked very nice on the outside, they professed a lot, they, they seemed really nice and godly, but really it was all for pride. Really it was all for vanity. Really it was all for self. Really it was like a Judas there among the twelve, but really not part of the twelve. And the disciples, even at the Last Supper, couldn't tell, even though Yeshua said, this is the one who's going to betray me, he dips it with me, they couldn't tell. Sometimes we can't tell. For others, that's why we're not to judge. But God was convicting, God was showing, and the books will show. I gave opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And we'll look at that, and we'll see that person's heart, 
We'll see the motives. We'll see everything that God did in their behalf to bring them to the Lord. And we'll see their final choice. And then we'll agree with God. Yeah, I guess he, she really didn't want to be here. Wouldn't really be happy here among all the praising of God going on, all the unselfishness, all the love. They really wouldn't be happy here. And they really just destroy it all over again. They would be another type of a Lucifer all over again. No, I guess they shouldn't be here. And we might also want to know why certain people are there. I imagine Stephen, the last thing Stephen saw was Paul and others throwing stones at him. And then Paul's standing there, he's going to wonder, what on earth is that guy doing here? The guy who stood over and held the coats of those that are stoning me, presided over that? And you let him into heaven, why? And God will show him. We may have other questions also. God, why did you allow me to go through that difficult time? Why did you allow me to have that sickness and that disease? Why did you allow my loved one to die at that time or to go through that trouble? Why did you allow that horrible thing to happen to me? And God will open the books and show us how everything worked out to get us to heaven. How everything worked out together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And we will judge him. We will say, yes, that was good. Yes, while I was going through it, it didn't seem to make sense. While I was here on earth, I never understood it. But now, as I see it through your eyes, I agree. Thank you for letting me judge. Thank you for allowing me to see the books. Thank you for allowing me to come into agreement with you. And of course, by the time it's over, we will agree on everything. We'll see even the angels, why some were cast out and some were able to stay. And we will come in full agreement with God. What a loving God to allow us to enter in as he right now is reigning as priest, came the first time as prophet, prophet, priest, and king. That's the three roles of the Messiah, the three roles of the Mashiach, the anointed ones. Came first time as a suffering servant, as a prophet. Second time he comes as this priest judge and he lets us enter into this judgment with him. And we judge with him and we judge the saints for a thousand years, as it says there, in Revelation 20, verse 6. So that's what we're doing in heaven and what's going on with the, on earth. The wicked, the wicked are dead, the earth is desolate, and Satan is bound for those thousand years. They were destroyed at his coming when he came, Zechariah 14, 3, he came to do battle and deliver his saints. In that battle, the brightness of the Lord killed the wicked, burned up the chaff. And Zechariah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. The heavens, they had no light. I beheld the, the mountains, and they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. There were no man, and the birds of heaven fled. It sounds very much like creation. But then verse 26 says, The fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So this is not talking about creation, that the earth is without form and void. It's talking about how the earth looks after the Lord returns, at his second coming, with his fierce anger. Destroys the wicked, from one end of the earth to the other, they're slain, they're left there, and they rot on the earth. Revelation talks about the birds of the air eating their flesh. And the land is without man, and the birds of heaven have fled. 
Land is fruitful, it's now a wilderness, it's void without form. The earth is just desolate. It's actually receiving its sabbatical rest. We've abused it for about 6,000 years, and then God will give it a thousand year sabbatical rest. Zechariah, again, writing at the end of the 70 years, and Jeremiah prophesying at the beginning of the 70 year Babylonian captivity, that the reason it was going to be 70 years is because for 490 years we did not allow the earth to receive its sabbatical rest. And so he was going to give it its sabbatical rest. All in one shot, we were supposed to give it one out of seven, we didn't do it, and so God gave it all 70 years to make up for those 70 Sabbaths, sabbatical years that we did not allow it. That's why it says we went into that captivity for that long. And so symbolically, the earth will also experience its sabbatical rest, its thousand-year rest for the 6,000 years that we have been abusing this world, God's earth. So at his coming, the cities will be broken down. All the nations of the earth, like Daniel 2, the stone coming and destroying all the nations of the earth. God coming like Zechariah 14, 30. He comes in his fierce anger to do battle and to deliver his saints. So that's what's happening on the earth. And then it takes us to the end of the thousand years, to the third advent, the third coming of the Lord, when the city descends. So there's three comings of the Lord. And that's very important. And the second coming was in the first three verses of Zechariah 14. The third coming is what we see described in the rest of the verses in chapter Zechariah chapter 14. And that's important to differentiate between the two. Because when the Lord came the first time, many people were reading the scriptures and were thinking, were, were looking at the kingly role of the Messiah, and they missed him because he wasn't coming the first time as a kingly role, he was coming as a prophet. And they had all the verses kind of jumbled together in their mind, even the disciples did not clearly understand it at first. But he comes in three distinct ways. First time as that suffering servant, that prophet, second time as the priest, warrior, judge, and only the third time he comes as king. And today we have a tendency to make the same mistake that was made 2,000 years ago in mixing up the third coming verses with the second coming verses. Second coming, as we've seen, he comes, destroys the wicked with the brightness of his coming, raises the righteous dead. Together with them, we meet the Lord in the air, and we go to the mansions that he is preparing for us in the New Jerusalem. And we spend 1,000 years there judging with him while the earth remains desolate for a thousand years. So a day of the Lord, a thousand years. So this is the Lord's day. Right? So Zechariah 13, or 14 rather, starts with the beginning of the day, that prophetic day, that thousand-year day, and then the rest of the chapter is the end of that day. So let's look at this. Back to Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making it a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move to the north and half of it toward the south. So he comes at the third coming and lands on the Mount of Olives. We saw at the second coming, we meet him in the air. Not on the Mount of Olives, not on anywhere else. We meet him in the air. And he takes us 
the mansions he's preparing for us. But if we mix this up, if we mix up the second and third coming and try and blend it together, it really doesn't make sense. How can he be standing on the Mount of Olives when we're meeting him in the air? And if we mix those up, we can miss him. Just as many people missed him at the first time because they're looking for some king to rule over and destroy the Romans for them, and he's coming as a suffering servant and dying for them. If we're thinking we're going to go see him in Mount of Olives or somewhere, well, the anti-Messiah will very easily be able to impersonate that and deceive the world. Thus all the world following after someone quoting the Bible, doing miracles, healing people, seemingly, seeming to raise people from the dead, doing all kinds of signs and wonders. Not as against the Messiah, not an anti-Messiah, but a standing in place of the Messiah, anti in the sense of in place of, an imposter of, impersonating, professing to be the Messiah, professing to be that coming, shining and Satan appearing as an angel of light. Again, seeming to do miracles and signs and wonders, standing on the Mount of Olives and quoting the Bible. And all the world goes, this is it. And we be deceived. Now it's at his third coming that he stands on the Mount of Olives. At his second coming, he will not stand anywhere here on this earth. At the third coming, we meet him in the air. At the third coming, the resurrection of the righteous takes place in mass. At the second, rather, at the second coming, at the second coming, the wicked are destroyed. And he stands on the Mount of Olives. And he's not just standing there preaching on the Mount of Olives. The whole mountain splits. Massively. Large split from the east to the west, making a very large valley, and half the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it towards the south. Well, that's interesting. East, west, and north and south, how can it do all of those things? Let's take a look at this. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the New Jerusalem descending as a bride. Well, who's the bride? God's people are the bride. We're the bride and the city is the bride because we are in the city. We went and we were in the city in the mansions he prepared for us. And now after we've judged for a thousand years and all our questions have been answered, then we descend again. Or not again, the New Jerusalem descends and we come back to this earth with Yeshua at his third coming. Zechariah 14, verse 5. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Now it said in the first verses that he comes, that was again his second coming. Right? And at that time he comes to deliver his saints. Here it says he's coming with his saints. If they were the same thing, how could he come to deliver and us be with him at the same time? First verses were about his coming to deliver us and to take us with him. And now, in verse 4 and 5, he's coming again, and this time we're with him in the city, in the New Jerusalem, as his bride descending from God out of heaven. And he lands on the Mount of Olives, and he makes a landing plain. Now, in the book of Genesis, God promised to Abraham the land and his descendants, from the river Nile 
to the river Euphrates. And we have this map here, and you see here on the left-hand side, you have the Nile River, that red line, and on the top part, the right part, you have the Euphrates River. And on the bottom is a line, and that is a line from the bottom of the one river to the bottom of the other river. And the measurement of that line just happens to be basically the size, the length of one of the sides of the New Jerusalem. So Yeshua comes, the earth has been vacant, void, received its sabbatical rest. We come down, Yeshua comes down, he lands on the Mount of Olives, and he lays open this big, flat plain. Does some excavating work to prepare a landing site for the New Jerusalem. It'd be horrible for us to be on some kind of mountain and we're tilting you know, back and forth. Now he makes it a flat plain for the New Jerusalem to come landing down on the eternal promised land. On the amount of land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the eternal children of God, he lands the New Jerusalem and fulfills his promise that that land would be given to, to, God's, to Abraham's children. And here's a little uh, diagram that someone did. They made this little box. They, they, they did it to scale, and they put it on the earth here, right over the Middle East. And go back to our other picture. You see here at the bottom, you see Saudi Arabia sticking out through the bottom. You see part of Egypt outside of it, right? And then part of Iraq and Iran outside of it. Well, let's look at this guy's little box. There's Saudi Arabia hanging down from the bottom of it. There's Egypt off to the other side of it. And we would have tilted it a little bit more of an angle than, uh, than that would have fit right in. And, and, and back to our map. The Mount of Olives there in the middle. You see Israel, Jerusalem. Right, so the Mount of Olives, so he comes and splits it to the east and to the west, the north and south. So the splitting the two rivers on the southeast and the, or southwest and the northeast. So splitting it in that north, south, east, west. Splits it in two, making this area for the New Jerusalem to descend and to sit right on it. And here's a side view of how high that building is, that, that new city is. And that we're all able to fit into it, a multi-tiered city, as high as it is long. Sitting there, and again, you kind of see there, Saudi Arabia coming out the bottom, Egypt off to the side, and it fitting right into that area that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The whole Bible comes to full circle. Zechariah 14, verse 5, you, the wicked, and I put the wicked in there myself, but it's, that's who I believe the you there is referring to. You shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, king of Judah. Now you might be saying, well, how can the wicked flee? They were dead. They were slain with the brightness of his coming. They were left to refuse on the earth. Yes. But then at the end of the thousand years, the Bible tells us they are resurrected in that second resurrection so that they can experience their second death. They died either before he came or at his coming. Either way, they received their first death. Cain received his first death long ago. Those that are remaining at the very end, the wicked, they die, they receive their first death, thus they need to be resurrected so they can experience their second death. 
their final judgment. So they're coming forth for their sentencing in a sense. God has judged, and then he allowed the appeal court to hear all the judgment. We agreed with God, thus they come forth to hear their final judgment. God brings them forth. And verse 6, Zechariah 14, verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, and the light will diminish, and it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that there will be light. Just like Revelation 22, verse 5, There shall be no night there, they shall, no need of a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The eternal Sukkot. Right? So we'll come back to the wicked in a minute, the chapter will come back to the minute, but, but uh, let's look at these verses on this light. Right? Verse 14, verse 6, that he's the light, and in Revelation, the Lord is the light. Verse 8, in that day it shall be that the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. So the western sea being the, the Mediterranean Sea, the eastern sea, maybe the Dead Sea, and I think it's in Ezekiel that talks about the water flowing from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea and making it fresh and fish being there all over again. And so God's water flowing out of Jerusalem, living waters flowing from Jerusalem. Well, Revelation says the same thing. Revelation 22, verse 1. A pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is water of life. And in the traditional Sukkot services in Jerusalem back 2,000 years ago when the temple was standing, there was a water ceremony. We don't have time to get into it right now. You can see messages on that from years past and on shalomadventure.com. But there is a water ceremony that ties, again, the whole thing all together. Revelation, uh, Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So again, at the third coming, he comes as king. At the second coming, at the beginning of this chapter, he came as deliverer, as judge, as warrior. But now in verse 9, he's coming with his saints, and he's coming as king. And again, a parallel to Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 16. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. Now, how can he be king of kings if there's no other kings? He made us priests, and now he makes us kings as well with him. Zechariah 14, verse 10. And the land shall be turned into a plain from Gibeah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up, and the inhabitants her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower Hanel to the king's winepress. Again, made a flat plain. And it gives some specific areas here, which obviously would be underneath the New Jerusalem, as big as it is. But again, there's a lot of symbolism in referencing here. Zechariah, anywhere in the chapter, really shouldn't be tried to be understood so literally, neither here as well. In verse 11, still Zechariah 14, the people shall dwell in it, no longer shall it be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And that's the eternal Sukkot. That's the eternal Feast of Tabernacles. And we're dwelling peacefully 
And we can dwell in booths and not have to have locks and worry and, and under the stars because we're eternally safe. An eternal habitation. That's the full fulfillment of Sukkot. That's why it lasts seven days, representing forever, representing eternity, representing ongoing completion. It's in its completeness. And so, at the Lord's coming, the third coming, the third advent, the city descended, and we in it, and the Lord comes and lands on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two, and the city descends upon it, and out of that city flows water, and we have peace and rest and security. But another thing happens simultaneously. The wicked receive, their wicked are raised in the second resurrection, and then they receive their final destruction, their second death. And Zechariah 14, verse 12, talks about this. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. So as they see the new Jerusalem, they're resurrected in that second resurrection, and they're raised with the same hatred, the same jealousy, the same pride, the same enmity, that they had when they died. The Lord judged them because he knew their heart. He showed us the books and we saw it too. So the Lord judged, we judged, and now they judge themselves. Showing that even if they were given another chance, they would be the same and they would do the same. And they come up on the city and they try to destroy the city. They try and take the city. Satan gathers them forward, all the nations from Gog to Magog, and he gathers them all together to that last great battle, that Armageddon battle. He gathers all the world, all the nations that are raised, every wicked down through the ages, from Cain and Nero and Nimrod and Hitler and all the wicked down through the ages, Pol Pot, all the wicked murderers, generals, and they gather all the world for a last great battle. But they are destroyed. The Lord strikes them with fire. Their flesh is dissolved while they're standing on their feet. And now these last few verses of Zechariah 14 repeat this story three times or several times. Similar as Genesis' story repeats itself. Chapter 1, chapter 2 describes the creation and the creation of man two different times. And we have 1 Kings, and we have 1 Samuel, and the Bible repeating some of the same stories. We have four Gospels repeating the same stories in different ways. Just as in a sermon, repeated several different ways so we can understand it from different angles. So, so also this chapter will now repeat the same, what's described here, the wicked being destroyed in their final and second death destruction. Bible parallels this in other chapters as well. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Burns it all up, destroys all the concrete and all the blacktop and all the graffiti and all the styrofoam and all the rubber tires and all the rusted cars and all the buildings. Everything is burned up. So he starts off fresh with a new heavens and a new earth. 
Malachi 4 verse 1, For behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Totally eliminate them. Revelation chapter 20 verse 9, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them as they came up on the breath of the earth to attack the city, just as we read in, in Zechariah 14, the fire devoured them, burned them up, dissolved them as they stood on their feet. And back to Zechariah 14, 13, verse 13 now, with again repeating the same story in a little different way, more in a symbolic way, more in an analogy way. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them and everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. And Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the nations, surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule and on the camel and on the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in those camps so shall this plague be. So again, describing in, in kind of wars that they could visualize back at that time when Zechariah was writing. Due to fighting, but not so much with battles and wars, swords and shields, but fighting a spiritual battle. In prayer, standing on the Lord's side. We fought against the flesh. We fought against the devil. We overcame temptations in the power of the Lord. And victorious. Verse 16, it shall come to pass that all the remainders of all the nations which came on Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, keep Sukkot. Right? So here's three times this is mentioned, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, in this chapter. Here's the first time. So it shall come to pass that all the remainders, all the remnant of all the nations of the earth, some of people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people have come to the Lord because right now we're taking the gospel to the world so that people all will hear the message before the Lord comes and this gospel shall go into all the world and then the end shall come. So now we need to be taking the gospel to the world and as people come out of the nations of the world and take their stand with the Lord, they will be among those that will experience the eternal Sukkot, the eternal Feast of Tabernacles. And we will go up from year to year to worship the Lord. We will have our city home in the New Jerusalem, the mansions he's preparing for us. We'll also have a country home. We'll dwell in the woods, the Bible says. We will build and no one will build for us. And we won't have to build for anyone else. We'll get to design it ourselves. And then year to year, we'll come to Jerusalem, Sabbath to Sabbath, new moon to new moon, we'll come before the Lord, eat from the tree of life, worship the Lord, rejoice together in the Lord. Zechariah 14, verse 17, Whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come, they will, shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague, which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come to the Feast of Tabernacles, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the judgment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations that do not come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
So now some people, again, trying to understand this literally and trying to understand it chronologically, where here he's just really repeating himself of the destruction of the wicked and the joy of the righteous. It says here, so those that don't come up will not get to, uh, don't come to uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, they won't have any rain. So now it sounds like, okay, there's some people outside who don't worship and don't serve the Lord for eternity, who don't follow the Lord, who don't receive any rain. Again, if you look at it literally, but what happens to any nation that receives the plague of no rain? What would happen to them? They'd end up with famine. Any fields and trees would dry up and die and rot away when no rain makes them susceptible to fires, right? Lightning strike comes and burns up areas that had no rain, that had a drought. And so just another way of saying they die. Just another way of saying they burn up. They burn up from the heat of the sun. They burn up from the fires that would, that would come and and destroy any area that did not have rain. They're saying year to year, it won't have rain. Well, what happens to people who live in areas that have no rain? It becomes a desert. And the people don't live there anymore, they die. It just is a symbolic way of saying they die. It's not saying that in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, that there'll be those who don't worship the Lord as well as those who worship the Lord. No, it's saying they die. As it said in the earlier verse. Just another way of saying it. Well, we, who've come out of all the nations, Jew and Gentile together, worshiping the Lord together, we have peace, we have rest, we have no fear, we have plenty, we have the river of water of life, we have the tree of life, we have the Lord our God reigning over us and walking with us. We have eternity, we have everlasting life. And then, then begins eternity. So Zechariah, first three chapters, verses, Sorry, with the second coming and the other verses in the Bible gave us what happens during the millennium. We're in heaven reigning with the Lord, judging with him. The wicked are dead. The earth is receiving its sabbatical rest. At the end of the thousand years, at the end of that prophetic day, or not prophetic, but the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, the thousand years, Zechariah tells us the Lord returns, lands on the Mount of Olives. The city descends, us with him. The wicked are raised and they are destroyed again, receiving their second death, and then starts eternity, the eternal Sukkot, the everlasting Sukkot with the Lord. In the last verse in Zechariah, last verses in Zechariah chapter 14. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar, Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So again, he kind of says the same thing again. Those who love the Lord, those who surrendered to the Lord, those who've received his sacrifice and his forgiveness and his mercy and his justice and his goodness, because of what the Lord has done for us, Yeshua becoming our Messiah at the second coming and dying for us, we have eternal salvation. And the wicked, those who reject it, they shall no longer be in the land. They're destroyed, 
But they came up against the New Jerusalem, dissolved, destroyed, burned up, no rain, famine, die, gone, or here shall no longer be in the house of the Lord of hosts. And thus, we have eternity. All those who are serving the Lord and the Lord reigning as King of kings, Lord of lords, for all eternity over us. And we enter into the fulfillment of the final and full Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot forevermore. So we get to choose. We get to choose whose side we're on. Right now is the time to choose. Whether we want to be on the Lord's side, whether we want to serve him with all our hearts and minds and souls, whether we want to receive his sacrifice in our behalf, whether we want him to fight in defense for us and win the battle for us, whether we want to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, or whether we want to hold on to pride, we want to hold on to selfishness, we want to hold on to our own theories and ideas and ambitions, our grievances and our grudges, our dissatisfaction, our anger, our resentment, our self-exaltation. We choose now. Now is the time to choose whether we want to serve the Lord or serve the beast. Whether we want to take this gospel to the world, whether we want to love God first and love our neighbors as ourselves, or whether we want to just love ourselves and feed ourselves and protect ourselves. Now is the time of choosing whose side we want to be on. Do we want to be on the Lord's side? Do we want to receive his sacrifice in our behalf? Do we want to receive his Holy Spirit to give us power to go forth as witnesses for him, to share his truth to all the world? That's our choice. That's our decision. Do we want to be on the outside, follow the beast, and ultimately be destroyed once and for all. And so, in a moment as we pray, let's make our decision for one side or the other. Whether we want the goodness that God has in store for us. Let us surrender our lives to him, thank him, and receive of his power. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name, Lord, for your word. We're thankful, Lord, you've laid out our future in store for us. Thank you, Lord, for being so loving and good and open and transparent. Thank you for allowing us to understand and to enter into judgment with you. Thank you that you are a just God. Thank you that you do all things right. Thank you that you will work all things together for good. To those that love you, those called according to your purpose. Thank you for calling us by your grace. Thank you, Yeshua, for dying for the sins of the world, for calling each one of us, for not wanting that any should be lost or perish. Lord, we want to accept your sacrifice in our behalf. Forgive us, cleanse us. Holy Spirit, fill us. Give us victory over sin. Make us overcomers with you and empower us to resist temptation and to go forth as conquerors, witnessing and testifying and sharing and telling of the good news of our coming Lord. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.